John chapter 3 this morning, we're going to continue looking through here. We come to the end of John chapter 3. And, uh, you know, it is, it is true, because the Bible tells us it is true, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable uh, for us in many ways, even the genealogies. So when you get to those, they even have a prophet. That's why they're, they're there. But all Scripture is indeed given to us for our profit, for our benefit as being God-breathed. But what also seems to be very true is that through Scripture, some passages seem to bear more weight than others. And that doesn't mean they're more important than others or more valuable than others. Simply that the context they're in or the way they express a truth or how it's written, what it has to say, seems to carry a heavier load uh, than others and expressing the great truth of Scripture. And I think that is certainly true of John chapter 3. When you think of the Word of God and you think of the great uh, truths of the Word of God, John chapter 3 is one of those chapters that quickly comes to mind because it's one of those chapters that we so easily remember. John chapter 3 and verse 3 is a term we use often. He must be born again is a term we use very often from John chapter 3 or when we're wanting to let people understand what the gospel is in a short and easy but powerful way. We think of John chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These are easy verses to remember, yet powerful in their, their context and in their concept. And as we come to our text this morning, we find another one of those powerful verses. We're going to read this morning from John 3. We're going to begin in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter and then uh, see what we have to learn this morning. So it says in John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizer, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we come so humbly and expectantly, dear God, that you would teach us, that we would learn the lessons, that your, indeed your spirit would work amongst us and make your word to come alive within us and teach us your ways. We thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Along with John 3, verse 3, and John 3, 16, John 3, verse 30 must come in one of those verses that carries a great load of Scripture. It is a potent and powerful verse. You know, they, they say, and you know, some people think, and you know, when I was a kid, I was asked, what does my dad do? He said, my dad doesn't really do anything. He talks for an hour on Sunday. And some people think, you know, well, get preaching is like that. You get up, you say something for an hour, and you hope it's all right, and you go away. But the reality is, is that when you come to preaching the Word of God, and some of you will know this, you have not truly come to be able to preach the Word of God until it has battered you around during the week, and you have come through it. John 3, verse 30 is one of those verses that batters you around. It is powerful. It is potent. It sits at the center of our text this morning, from verse 22 to verse 36. It is the Apostle John brings us back here and brings the, the testimony of John the Baptist back into frame for us to understand, for us to grow and consider. And in the testimony of John, as he speaks these words, he must increase, but I must decrease, we see the power and the purpose of the gospel. All this that Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about, that we must be born again, that Jesus must be lifted up, that if we don't believe in him, we will perish and we need to believe in him. All of that comes to this great transformative message. He must increase. I must decrease. The way the gospel changes who we are. This is a statement that does not diminish over time. But in fact, the longer you live in Jesus Christ, the more potent these words become. The longer I pursue Jesus, the more I see he must be exalted and I must become less. It never goes away. In the example of John the Baptist, we see the heart of our salvation. The attitude that must permeate every part of our service for God. And so as we move through this and as we see it move up to that statement and through it and past this statement in the example of John, let's remember these things. But let's begin here with this uh, uh, little uh, observation, the subtle danger of pride. Because that's where our passage begins here, with the subtle danger of pride. Verse 22 gives us a, a little bit of the context in verse 23. And John also was baptizing in Anon, and Jesus was there near Salem because there was much water. They came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. So what we see here in the context as we begin is we see here at first an, an awkward discussion, an awkward situation that arises here. At least from our perspective, it seems awkward. It seems a little uh, difficult. 
Jesus leaves Jerusalem where he, he has been and speaking with Nicodemus and ministering there. And for a while, his ministry is going to be predominantly rural. So he stays out of the main cities for a while and he ministers through the small towns and things through uh, Judea and, and Galilee particularly as he moves on. And while he's there, he's teaching and he's baptizing. And here, and we don't really know the exact location where it's at. The historians and all can't pinpoint exactly where it's at, but it's somewhere out in the, in the wilderness there. It's not a big town, country area where there's, there's a lot of water. But Jesus is out there with his disciples and they're baptizing people. And in the same place is John, John the Baptist, with his disciples. And John the Baptist is there with his disciples baptizing. They can see each other. Perhaps they can hear what's going on as they speak. John the Baptist and Jesus find themselves teaching and baptizing in the same area. The awkwardness is perhaps brought to the attention through the Jewish leaders. So it tells us there in, in our text that the Jews come to the, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist and ask about this uh, purifying or this purification. They have a question to them, drawing out some of what's going on here. The question about purifying that they ask is probably about the purpose of their baptizing. Why are you baptizing here? And Because for the Jews, baptism wasn't an unusual thing. They saw it often. It was part of what they taught. It was part of what they, they did and part of their teaching. It was a symbol for the Jews of purification, of renewal. Baptism wasn't unusual to them. They seem to want to know why, though, John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing and why they're in the same area baptizing. Like now, baptism was a picture of cleansing. It was an illustration of what was going on. It was a, a testimony of a new walk, of a new life. It was a testimony of being washed clean. It pictured particularly in John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, it particular, uh, pictured particularly what made them clean, which was repentance. This was the message of John and Jesus. Repent, be baptized to repentance and follow Jesus. It was a picture there of that New Testimony. It was also an identification with the teacher and with the disciples that they followed. But here, John and Jesus are at the same place, both baptizing for repentance. Their message has been the same. John has been preaching repentance and telling people, follow Jesus. And that's what his disciples say to him here. Jesus has been baptizing people with his disciples and saying, follow Jesus. So we have two people in the same area, both baptizing for the same reason. Follow Jesus. Repent from your sins and follow Jesus. So we come to a question about authority, and that's probably at the heart of what the Jews were bringing up with John's disciples. It's not really about the baptism, but about why they're baptizing and who is right. Why is John and Jesus both there baptizing? And this is where we begin to see pride start to sneak in. After the discussion with the Jewish leaders, John's disciples go to John with some confusion. And they say to John, 
Master, people are going to someone else. We're here preaching and baptizing, but they're going to him. It seems that there is, at least in part, an attempt to divide here. Jealousy slowly sneaks in. There seems to be a little tension beneath the surface here that's going to need to be dealt with very quickly. Apparently, John the Baptist's disciples haven't yet got what John the Baptist was teaching. That is, Jesus is the one to follow. Many of them had, and that's why they're going to Jesus. But there's still some who are coming to John, and they're sticking with John, and they haven't quite had the penny drop yet that John is telling them Jesus is the one to be with. Now, John's disciples see that Jesus is getting more attention than John. John, they're all going to him. Why are they going to him? Two groups, two teachers in the same area, preaching the same message. Both doing God's work. One group grows, the other group shrinks. You say, well, it's Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus, and that makes this situation a little bit unique in its context here. But what I want you to do this morning is I want you for a moment to consider the reaction of John's disciples. I want you to think about what they're thinking about and where they're at as they watch this happen. John, who had a growing, thriving ministry, is now seeing that ministry shrink while Jesus is growing, and they don't understand why. Have you ever been in their shoes? Jealousy, which rises from pride, creeps in easily. Jealousy can destroy Perhaps this was a deliberate plot by the Jews. I'm just assuming that here. There's nothing to indicate that that's exactly what they were doing. Saying perhaps it was a plot from the Jews to sow a little seed of doubt amongst the disciples of John and cause some division between the disciples of John and Jesus and that there would be friction and then in that friction divide the two and then this whole thing of Jesus and John would just disappear and they could go back to doing what they wanted to do and being Jews as they had always been. Satan often works in our pride and our jealousy to divide and conquer. The New Testament speaks very often of the dangers of division. Persecution from outside, from those that despise Christianity, that, that persecute from outside, that over the centuries has tended to bring strength. But trouble from within has always weakened. Maybe, as we look at these two ministries, you see an uncomfortable truth. Jealousy that can arise from seeing God bless other people, other ministries, and not yours. Many years ago, at Cambridge Baptist, we had an evangelist coming to spend time with us and, and stay a few days for some meetings with us. We had prayed for this and planned for it and we'd invited people and we'd letterboxed out with this and this is several, several years ago and we'd prayed for it. 
And he was going to be at a couple of churches before us, before he came to our church. And, and when he arrived with us and we were talking and preparing for it, he said uh, in the meetings at these two churches before him, people had been saved and God had been very good. And we had our few nights of meetings which we'd prayed for and invited people for and no one got saved. Nothing happened. Why? We prayed. We planned. We prayed more. How come it happened to them and not us? Jealousy rises easily and quickly. Why does God seem to be blessing that ministry, that person, that church, more than he seems to be us? Why is that growing and I'm not? If not confronted quickly, it will transform easily into bitterness. And this is where the disciples of John find themselves. John, we're doing the right thing. We're pursuing, we're repenting. Why is he growing and we're not? One of the things that I had to learn as a church planter was this. The gospel and the gospel ministry isn't a competition. Jesus had to deal with the same attitude with his disciples later. As so often happens, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. Jesus addresses that, and in the course of addressing that, in Luke chapter 9, it says the Apostle John, which I find interesting that he's the one that causes this particular thing, because he's writing about it here. The Apostle John says here, in Luke chapter 9, says, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Jesus had to deal with the same attitude in his own disciples that John is addressing here with his. It's not just one group that struggles with this and another. It comes to all of us so easily, so quickly. Perhaps you notice this morning, as I do quite often sometimes in my pastoral prayers, I pray for all churches where the gospel is preached. We're not the only ones with the truth. We're not even the only ones in our community preaching the truth. The gospel is not a competition. Some years ago, a friend invited me to see them in in the city where they were street preaching on a Friday night. So I went into the city on that Friday night and by the time I was able to get there they had already begun and they were there preaching and there was a small crowd that had gathered in. What I didn't know was that a, another man and his group from a church was also there to street preach and they were there every Friday night in the same place doing the same thing. Well, when I got there and, and I saw the friends who had invited me there, street preaching, I noticed that the, my other friend who was there with, with his church group wasn't over on the side complaining that somebody had come and taken their spot and their time in the city, that they were always there. I noticed that these people were mingling amongst the crowd, sharing the gospel as the others preached it. So what did I do? 
I prayed for them both. They weren't annoyed that somebody took their spot. They helped minister the gospel where it needed to be ministered. John the Baptist's re response at this point is very important. What happens and how John responds to his disciples will affect everything that goes from here. Is he concerned about his ministry or is he concerned about God's ministry? And this is where John teaches about the rich joy of humility. Verse 27 so verse 26 says, And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Now read that verse again. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Wow. That is an important response. That's an important way to deal with this. As he shows us the rich joy of humility, he begins by reminding us to acknowledge God's gift. Beware of pride. This is a statement about self-sufficiency. Let's be honest, there is, there is often too much pride in serving God. I've had the, the pleasure this week of receiving a number of emails and texts and things uh, encouraging me and, and, and being very helpful and kind, and I appreciate that very much. So because I've gotten those messages, I must be a good preacher. Until I look at YouTube and see that Ryan has three times the amount of listens that I do. Or maybe... I hope they hear that fill of that harmony I did while I was singing, or I've trained my kids to be more godly than yours. It comes in so many ways, in so many fashions, where serving God becomes a point of pride in our lives. John reminds us in these few words in his response to his own disciples that every ministry is a gift from God whether it's the ministry of your family or your work or in this church or to people that need it or a ministry of the gospel, every ministry is a gift from God. How easy it would have been for John the Baptist to lose sight of his purpose and to be distracted by the crowds and the accolades that had quickly come to him as he preached. He's one of the most popular teachers of the day. Converts by the dozens. How easily it would have been for him to be distracted by that. We don't build churches, ministries, families, whatever on our own. God blesses us as he sees fit. What lasts is what God builds. I can't make anything great, but God can. So we need to be humbled by our privilege because serving God, we're reminded here with John, is a privilege. It is a gift of God, no matter what it is and no matter what it looks like. 
It is a gift. It is a gift from our great God. This ministry is a gift from God to bring glory to him. Your family is a gift from God to bring glory to him. In every gift that I have been given, it is my responsibility to point to Jesus. No matter what that is, no matter where God has placed me or what he has done in my life, whether it be a, a, a big family or a small family, whether it's a family with children or no children, whether it's a big church or a little church, whether it's a ministry that reaches a thousand people or one, my responsibility is to use that ministry to point to Jesus. I have no claim on anything. If God wants to take it away for his glory, he can. I had the pleasure many years ago of well, meeting Marinella and her husband, Victor, and, and the pleasure of doing Victor's funeral many years ago, but what made it such a pleasure for me was what I learned from him. I only knew Victor when he was suffering from, no, suffering's the wrong word, particularly given what I'm going to say. I only knew Victor when he had Parkinson's disease. I didn't know him before that. And by the time I met him, he, he couldn't speak a lot because of the disease and, and even was having trouble getting around. But I remember one time sitting in our lounge room at Bible study and we were talking about the work of God and in the slow, deliberate words that he could share with us, he said, the disease had been a gift from God. The things that he had learned from God by having aspects of his life taken away taught him much about his God. I have never forgotten that. What a man learned when God removed this is the way God works in our life. We are humbled by our privilege. Serving God is a privilege, and in everything, he is to be glorified. So as we acknowledge God's gift, accept your role with joy. Verse 28, John continues, Ye yourselves bear, witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled or complete. Accept your role with joy, that is, magnify Jesus. John the Baptist was very clear on his purpose. He reminds his disciples what he said. John chapter 1, verse 20. I am not the Christ. I'm just a voice. John chapter 1, verse 25. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He is the one. John chapter 1 and verse 30. Jesus is the one you need. John 3, 28. He reminds again, I am not the Christ. This life your ministry, everything you have, it's not about you at all. It's about Jesus. This life, 
is about Jesus. That's the purpose of our life, to point people to Jesus. John the Baptist here describes himself like a best man at a wedding. Now, the best man's job at a wedding isn't to wear the brightest suit he can with the flashing cummerbund and the great big top hat so that he stands out above all and gets the attention. That's not the job of the best man at a wedding. The job of the best man at the wedding is to serve the groom so that the groom gets the praise on the day that he and his bride deserve. His job is to stay in the back to do what needs to be done so that the groom and the bride have their glory. This is how John saw his life. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. The one who's simply to step back and point you to the groom. To see his glory, to see his joy... Our greatest purpose is to magnify Jesus. That's why I put the telescope in the front. Maybe you noticed that as you came in with that verse in there, the telescope at the front. It's not my illustration, but it's one I've never been able to forget. To magnify Jesus isn't to magnify Jesus like a microscope magnifies things. What does a microscope do? A microscope takes things that are very small and makes them look big. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about magnify. When the Bible talks about magnify, it means make something that is big look more like what it looks like. So I was explaining it this morning to one of the young men this morning. I said, when you look at the moon and you look up at the moon with your eyes, what does it look like? It looks small. Now we know it's not small. But if I look at the moon through the telescope, it looks more like what it actually is. That is what it means for our lives to magnify God. Not to make some puny weenie God look big, but to make a God of the universe look more like what he actually is. To see him truly. Make Jesus appear large in the eyes of others. In doing that, we find that we will be filled with joy. We think, at least in our society and naturally, we think if we're great, if we're influential, if we're large, we'll be joyful, we'll be satisfied with the influence and the gain that we have. But John the Baptist reminds us that the fullness of joy comes in being small, unknown, unseen. The joy wasn't in himself or in his accomplishments. His joy was in the bridegroom. His joy was in Jesus. The joy of being a Christian isn't what I accomplish. The greatest joy in the end is going to be to look back, not at what I have built in this world, or what I have left behind. The greatest joy in the end is going to be able to see that Christ was made large in my life. That not when I leave this world, people are going to remember me. 
People can forget me if they remember who I pointed to. My legacy doesn't really mean much unless it's a legacy of Jesus Christ. So, actively exalt Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. We have seen that small word must appear several times in John 3. You must be born again. That is, you need to be made what you are not. He must be lifted up. And again here, he must increase. I must decrease. These are the principles of the Christian life. You must be born again. He must be lifted up. I must decrease. That's the principles of Christianity. With this as your purpose, when the temptation to pride and jealousy arise, you will know what to do. Exalt Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. To make Christ large in my life, I must become small. That doesn't mean that I am not uh, significant or that I have no value. Psalm 30, which we read at the beginning of our service, says, to the end that my glory or that my soul, that my being, may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. My glory, my soul, all that I am will give praise to God. It's not just that he must increase. So John didn't just say he must increase. He deliberately added he must increase, I must decrease. So the picture he is giving is not this, that Jesus can come into my life and he must play a bigger role in my life, but there's still me in my life. The picture he is saying is, as he increases, I must decrease. That is, my life becomes more Christ, less me. More Christ, less me. That's what he's saying. Not that Jesus must come in and get bigger in me and that we have this mix of Jesus and me. The goal is, when you look at me, you see Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. There must be less of me. More of Jesus, less of me. So, we see the last the glorious supremacy of Christ. Why? Why must he increase and I decrease? Because John reminds us in verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from above is above all. Did you notice in that moment he says above all twice? Twice. Jesus is above all. He must increase in my life because he has descended 
from above. He is supreme. He is superior. He is preeminent in all things. Why is he supreme? Why is he above all? Because he is from above. He is from heaven. He is God. Jesus is the eternal, glorious God of all. When I seek glory, I'm trying to replace something heavenly with something earthly. When I seek glory, I'm trying to replace something wonderfully eternal, magnificent, and, and above price with something that fades away. Jesus isn't just really good earthly person. Jesus is the perfect, divine, eternal person. We see the glorious supremacy of Christ because he's descended from above because he has delivered eternal truth. John says in verse 32, and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. No man receiveth his testimony. I can tell you earthly things. Some earthly things. I'm not that smart. I can tell you earthly things. But Jesus can tell you eternal things. Because he's seen eternal things. He's from eternity. He can tell you what I cannot. Because he's seen it. He's been there. It is who he is. This is why we preach from the Bible. Because that is what God has told us. It's heavenly truth. He has, he has descended from above. He's delivered eternal truth. He has declared God is true. Verse 33, he that hath received his testimony has set to his seal or confirmed God is true. Jesus reveals to us God and tells us God is true and truthful. And then he says, for whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He's descended from heaven. He's delivered eternal truth. He's declared God is true. He has divine power. He works, Jesus works, with the full divine power of God, because he is God. Because the Father the Son, and the Spirit work together in perfect harmony. I am none of these things. So glory doesn't belong to me. I am not from above. I cannot deliver to you what I have seen of eternity because I haven't seen it. I can only declare to you that God is true because Jesus has declared God is true. And he is the one that works with divine power. He is God. Glory belongs to Jesus because he is all of these things and more. Like John the Baptist, we are just messengers of the great truth of the gospel. Jesus is the object of that gospel. Jesus 
is the power of that gospel. Jesus is the glory of that gospel. Eternal life doesn't come because I'm a good preacher. And I can put together nice words that will convince you to believe what I have to say. Eternal life comes because Jesus is a great God. Believe him for eternal life. This is the only place in verse 36... It says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is the only place in John's Gospel where he uses that word wrath. It's a terrifying word. Wrath is not just anger, it's not just vindictive displeasure. Wrath means the settled displeasure of God against sin. That is, it is his eternal disposition, his eternal thought on sin. He despises sin. And his wrath, his anger, his punishment rests because of that. That is, salvation isn't about God being angry or vindictive. But it's about his absolute natural opposition to all that is unrighteous. So why must I decrease and he increase? Because he and he alone is the saviour. With Jesus there is everlasting life. Without Jesus there is condemnation. There is eternal torment, punishment, perishing wrath. If you want eternal life, if you want salvation from judgment, you must recognize that on your own, you are not enough. You need to submit to Jesus as Savior because he is enough. When you believe him for salvation from sin, you receive the benefit and he is glorified. Believer, that truth only intensifies as you grow in faith. That statement, he must increase and I must decrease, only becomes more potent the longer you serve Christ. Every day in your life, he must increase and you must decrease. Every part of Christian life and ministry is about Jesus, not you. So be putting to death your ego and give praise to God for his work. No matter where it is, no matter what it looks like, no matter how he chooses to use you, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, dear God, for your ministry through the word. Thank you for John the Baptist seeing the truth of his place and leading us to understand the importance of that. 
our prayer this morning as a people of God is that you will increase, that we will decrease, that above all in this place, in this church, you will be seen. That through us and in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit will be manifest so that Christ is glorified. So that people will be saved from their sin because they see Jesus, not because they see us. So this morning, may you receive all the glory and all the praise because you are above all and worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.